It's time for a healthy Which breakfast. Which is the number one chocolate for two pizza. It's time for a healthy Which breakfast. Which is the number one chocolate for two pizzas for the price of one. A taste for the price of one. A taste so wonderfully fresh. So wonderfully fresh. That's the spicy East Texan cotton farmers sitting in the East Texan cotton farmers sitting in the remote countryside of India. They always complained that they just couldn't get the countryside of India. They always complained that they just couldn't get the people to work, the people to work on the farm, on the farms. And so eventually, and so eventually, they gave up on this uh, project because what was really at the core of it was not just the land, it was not just the seed, it was not just the tools, it was not just the transportation infrastructure. But you had to have somebody who did all the digging and the harvesting and taking care of the cotton plant. And in the United States, that had been resolved through enslaving Africans. Thanks for joining us for The Secret Ingredient, a podcast produced at KUT Radio in Austin, Texas, that takes you into the depths of food history and production. Today, our secret ingredient is cotton. I'm Raj Patel from the Lyndon Baines Johnson School of Public Affairs. I'm Tom Philpott from Mother Jones. For KUT, I'm Rebecca McEnroy. Before we get to our featured interview with Sven Beckert, author of Empire of Cotton, A Global History, we'd like to welcome a very special guest to our show for a new segment called Letter from a Correspondent. It's the world-renowned economist Dr. James Kenneth Galbraith, author of, most recently, Welcome to the Poison Chalice, The Destruction of Greece and the Future of Europe. We're going to be talking a lot about capitalism in our conversation with Sven on cotton. And so to put things in context, Dr. Galbraith has a few thoughts on how it all began. When and where did capitalism begin? The provocative but likely correct answer given by the Israeli-born filmmaker Ilan Ziv in his new six-part series on capitalism is, several centuries before Adam Smith published The Wealth of Nations in 1776, and in the sugar islands of the conquered and colonized West Indies. Here, the structured protections of medieval fief and guild did not exist. Everything was or could be a commodity, including human life. Capitalism did not originate slavery, of course. Ziv's point is the other way round. In North America, the great slave crops were tobacco, rice, indigo, and ultimately and above all, cotton. And it was cotton that drove the great wedge between the slave-driving globalist, free-trading oligarchs of the rural American South and the rising industrialists of the North, for whom union, protection, and slavery undisturbed meant the prospect of challenging Britain as the preeminent world industrial power. Only disunion pushed these forces into the abolitionist camp. Karl Marx wrote in Die Presse of Vienna of November 6, 1861, Today, as 15 years ago, England stands face to face with a catastrophe that threatens to strike at the root of her entire economic system. What the potato was to Irish agriculture, cotton is to the dominant branch of Great Britain's industry. Now, the cotton plant is not indeed diseased. Just as little is its production the monopoly of a few regions of the earth. The cotton monopoly of the slave states of the American Union is not a natural, but a historical monopoly. 
Indeed, in the past few years, the American cotton monopoly attained dimensions scarcely dreamt of before, partly in consequence of free trade legislation, which repealed the hitherto existing differential tariff on the cotton grown by slaves. A differential tariff on the work product of slaves? What an idea! Rank protectionism, a sin and heresy against the great god of free trade. Allow that, and the next thing you know, people will be clamoring for labor standards, for environmental protections, for health and safety regulations, even for trade unions. And then, where would the poor, innocent, set-upon and endangered global investor be. In Austin, I'm James Galbraith for The Secret Ingredient. Dr. James K. Galbraith holds the Lloyd M. Benson Jr. Chair in Government Business Relations and is a professor of government at the LBJ School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin. He was our featured guest for this edition of Letter from a Correspondent. You're listening to The Secret Ingredient, produced at KUT Radio in Austin, Texas. This week's secret ingredient is cotton. Cotton isn't a foodstuff per se, though cottonseed oil has become quite a staple for the food industry, which is always in the hunt for a cheap fat. But that's not why we're taking a deep dive into what might seem at first blush like the soft, fluffy world of a fiber so ubiquitous that it's on my back as we speak. In a previous episode of The Secret Ingredient, the farmer and agrarian intellectual Blaine Snipstall argued convincingly that the palette for modern industrial agriculture was formed in the 19th century cotton fields of the U.S. South. Vast monocrops, highly regimented and exploited labor, all that was missing was a gusher of synthetic pesticides and fertilizer, which came later. To get a grip on cotton and how it transformed not just agriculture, but arguably ushered in the modern world, our guest today is the author of Empire of Cotton, Harvard historian Sven Beckert. Welcome, Sven. Great to be with you. You write uh, in the book, one of the many interesting things in the book um, is that you write that cotton was a leading global industry for centuries before Europe ever got involved with it. Can you explain how that, how that happened and what, what you mean by that? Right. I mean, in most of the world, humans have a, a, a ecological need to, to protect themselves against the sun and against the cold. And so humans for a very long time, for several millennia, have produced clothing. And in much of the world by the year 1000 of the common era, uh, approximately, but in much of the world, that, uh, that uh, clothing was produced out of cotton fibers. Uh, and uh, the producing the cotton f- fiber, uh, produ- growing cotton and then uh, spinning that cotton and weaving it into cloth and then manufacturing it into clothing is a labor-intensive process. It, uh, it, it takes a lot of skill, it takes a lot of effort, it takes a lot of time. And, uh, and for that reason, outside of agricultural pursuits, uh, producing uh, cotton fibers, uh, producing cloth and then clothing 
uh, was most likely the most significant manufacturing industries that humans engaged in uh, for the approximately the past 1,000 years. Of course, that industry was not located uh, everywhere. Uh, it uh, was almost unknown on the continent of Europe, which eventually would though become the center of the global cotton industry in the 19th century. But for much of the history of cotton, uh, Europe played a very marginal role. It was instead located in South Asia, in uh, Western East Africa and in Central America. But the real center of the global cotton industry for most of its history was South Asia. So uh, how is it that, that um, the, the, the global cotton industry that, that you, you write about so wonderfully uh, in Empire of Cotton doesn't really begin um, with South Asia, but it begins, uh, it begins through what you call war capitalism? Yes. So one of the puzzles that I'm trying to explain is the, in this book is that how come that an industry that has uh, such a long history that is so important to so many people in so many parts of the world, but not on the continent of Europe, how come that by the 19th century, this industry, the center of this industry, the center of its manufacturing activities is the continent of Europe? In some ways, this is a huge puzzle. And obviously, the explanations that we have for this, uh, for the, for this change, for this development, uh, have largely focused on Europeans' ability to develop new kinds of machines that made it more efficient to spin cotton fibers and to weave them into cloth in the late 18th and the early 19th century. And certainly, these machines are important. But what I'm arguing in this book is that the rising dominance of Europe started way before Europeans ever invented new machines. It really started already in the 16th century, and, uh, and it started by Europeans making themselves central to the global networks of cotton before they had invented any kind of new machines. And the way how Europeans insert themselves into these, new, into this, into these global networks of, of cotton is through war capitalism. They uh, begin to capture territories in the New World, which is uh, with territories on which Europeans now can grow uh, cotton. They capture uh, technologies uh, in South Asia as a result of the European expansion into that part of the world. They capture labor in Africa through the European expansion into Africa and the European domination of the slave trade. And combining land expropriations, uh, Asian technologies, and, um, and African labor, they are able to increasingly play an important and even dominant role within the global cotton industry even before the Industrial Revolution. But, uh, I mean, the Romans were, were, were out and about in Africa and in Asia. What, what makes, right. um, what, what makes the, the Europe that you're, the, 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 you know, the more modern Europe, um, yes. different from, you know, what preceded it 2,000 years before? Right. I mean, the global trade networks around cotton have existed for a very, very long time. Indeed, the Romans, that you, who you just mentioned, already consumed South Asian textiles uh, that were brought across the Indian Ocean and across the Arabian Desert and across the Mediterranean all the way to the city of Rome. So the fact that cotton textiles are traded over very long distances is not new. But what is new in the 17th and 18th century 
is that uh, Europeans not just trade with, let's say, As Asian producers, but they increasingly come to dominate the production uh, of, of raw cotton and then also the manufacturing of cotton textiles. And they, 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 they structurally come to dominate also the global trade networks that emerge around that commodity. And that is a huge difference to, the, let's say, Roman times or earlier uh, trade networks. Um, Sven, you know, you're from Hamburg, Germany, right? Uh, not, not quite, no, but no. I'm from Frank I'm from Frankfurt, from Frankfurt. Germany. Yeah. Okay, Hamburg, Frankfurt. Frankfurt. Oh, come on. You know. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how you got into this topic. What, what interested you in, in cotton? And right. also, um, talk a little bit about your, your research methods for this book. Right, right. These these are great questions, and of course, uh, you know, it it might seem uh, puzzling for somebody um, uh, who is not a historian how you could possibly keep yourself busy for almost a decade researching the history of cotton. Though I think it is one of the most fascinating stories that you can possibly tell about human history. But um, but look, I came to it. I was uh, trained as a historian of the United States. I wrote uh, another book uh, uh, on the history of New York City in the 19th century. And uh, when I was done with that book, I wanted to do something that situates the history of the United States much more in global history. I was really unhappy with so much American history being so uh, insular and, and so uh, told in ways that, that insulated American history from the history of the rest of the world. So I wanted to embed this history in, in a more global story. And I wanted to do something uh, about uh, the, the, the kind of large-scale economic changes that the United States went through in the course of the 19th century. And it dawned on me that one way of doing so is to focus on one of the United States' most important commodities, namely cotton. Uh, cotton mattered a great deal to the American economy. It mattered a great deal to uh, many of the political conflicts of the 19th century. And at the same time, cotton connected clearly the history of the United States to the emerging industrial history of, of the United Kingdom and of other parts of Europe. Uh, and uh, at the very beginning, I was also quite aware that there are connections into India and Egypt. But I myself had no real clear sense how global cotton as a commodity really is. And I also had no clear sense how important cotton is to the kind of larger history of the world in the past few hundred years beyond the 19th century. Uh, and that, you know, once I started researching this, uh, this, uh, the, the history of this, uh, this uh, the commodity, this fiber, uh, it, it, it just took me to other regions of the world about which I knew very little when I started my research and about uh, who's, uh, the, about the, their connection to the, to, the, to, uh, to the history of the United States. Let's say I also knew very, very little. And so I ended up not just writing about the United States, about the United Kingdom, about e Egypt and India, but also about Central Asia, about Japan, about China about West Africa, about Brazil, about Mexico, and many, many parts uh, in between. So, so in a way, the result of the book, that the book itself is the result of, of the, you know, the kind of research driving me into ever more uh, parts of the world and also into a kind of ex more expansive time frame. Um, so the research itself, the book is very much... Uh, uh, archival-based. Uh, I, uh, I researched in archives in, in, in all parts of the world, from Australia to Japan to India to many different parts of uh, Europe, the United States, of course, uh, um, Mexico, Argentina, and other places. So I, I went to a lot of archives because uh, what I wanted to do is I didn't just want to tell a very global history that, uh, that let's say, just focuses on globally connected merchants or on economic statistics, but I wanted to tell a global history that at the same time is also 
also very local. I wanted to tell stories about the particular places and particular people and how they intersected with cotton. And in a way, one of the core arguments of the book is that the global itself, the global economy itself, the global cotton empire itself is the result of very many different local situations. And in order to understand the global, we need to understand that local, these local situations as well. Sven, um, so let's get back to the kind of line of the story. So by the end of the 18th century, yeah. um, it seems like U.S. slavery is starting to peter out as there's lots of comp you know, there's competition for the, co the sort of a tobacco production that U.S. slavery right. is mostly concerned yes. with. Um, and uh, meanwhile, Europeans and also um, sort of Europeanized North Americans are dressing mostly in linens and woolens, as, as you as you write um, several times. And, and then suddenly everything changes in, in both of those things. And I wonder if you can talk us through that process. Right. So, so as you just mentioned, if, if, if you look at the, the history of clothing, Europeans uh, had known, as I mentioned earlier, cotton textiles uh, since Roman uh, since Roman times. But but cotton doesn't grow on the continent of Europe. Uh, it was uh, imported from 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 places uh, far away, and and thus it was very pricey. And thus uh, cotton fabrics were almost exclusively just uh, accessible to the to the to the wealthiest uh, in in Europe. And and most people in Europe uh, dressed in linens and in in woolens. Obviously, cotton as a fabric has certain properties that make it preferable to woolens and 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 linens. And um, and as a result, Europeans had a desire to consume more cotton fabrics. And as a result, then, of the European insertion into these global cotton networks, especially the increasing trade with South Asia, brought more cotton fabrics onto the continent of Europe and thus increased consumption of cotton fabrics there. And then in the wake of the Industrial Revolution in the 19th century, of course, cotton slowly becomes the dominant textile fabric. So this is on the side of uh, the consumption within Europe itself. But uh, when it comes to the systems of labor through which raw cotton was produced, uh, as you mentioned, uh, for the uh, for un until about um, until about uh, until 18, uh, 1861, the, the 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 dominant system of labor that produced the cotton that was used in European factories was slave labor. Uh, very little cotton produced by by free peasants or sharecroppers or other such uh, rural cultivators would 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 come to Europe. I think about approximately about seventy five percent of all cotton consumed in Europe uh, was produced by by slaves, uh, and by the early nineteenth century, much of that production uh, took place in the United States, as 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 you mentioned. Um, it is important to see, though, that the United States came relatively late to cotton production uh, by the um, really only by the late 19th century in the in the 1790s, but late 18th century, by the 1790s in 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 particular, and. Um, and, and yes, it, there was a decline in tobacco agriculture in the Upper South, uh, and uh, it, 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 in a way, the, the economic dynamic of slavery in the antebellum period, in the first six decades of the 19th century in the United States, largely is owed to the fact of the vast expansion of cotton agriculture and the huge profitability of that extension of uh, cotton agriculture. 
Um, Sven, though, can I, uh, given that we're back on the line of the the, the argument you're making, I mean, most most yeah. of this, <clears throat> excuse me, as you say, the United States comes late to this party, uh, and. The, the this what's again what's wonderful about Empire of Cotton is that that um, it is a history of the United States that's also a history of the world and a history of capitalism. Um, right. w- one one of the sort of building blocks of this is the idea of war capitalism, um, right. and I, I'm uh, the, the way I'm understanding that is that it's uh, both. I mean, as you say, the, the 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 process through which Europe doesn't just trade with people, but dominates and starts to own stuff, um, whether that stuff is land or labor uh, through slavery or um, or money. Uh, and I'm, I'm wondering if you right. can talk a little bit, since your first book was Moneyed Metropolis, um, yeah. and, <laughs> and, 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 I, and I'm, I'm just sort of curious about uh, b- both the substance of your argument, but also how much there's a sort of bleed between your interests of 19th century uh, money in right. New York City, um, right. and how much of that you were able to cast back and see how... European flows of money enabled right. Europe to, to dominate um, the, the cotton market? Because the, 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 there wasn't quite as much of that in the book, and I wondered if, if you might be able to, uh, to to talk a little bit more about the, the, sort of the flows of capital um, that, that that helped to make the, the, put the capital in war capitalism. Right, right, right. I mean, that is obviously a very, uh, very essential and very important uh, to the story. It is not just a story about the control of land and labor, but it is also very much a story about the control of capital and how this capital moves into new areas of the world, into new forms of labor mobilization, such as slavery. And if you look at the, uh, I mean, obviously, so, so, so to take one step back, the, 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 the kind of link between slavery and cotton really only emerges in the mid 18th century. And it emerges in the West Indies, in the Caribbean, where for the first time, a large number of slaves are used to grow cotton for uh, European markets. That system then by the 1780s moves uh, to the, to Brazil, to South America. And as we mentioned earlier in the 1790s, then moves to the, uh, it moves to the United States. In the United States, it, uh, it is, uh, it is a very capital-intensive uh, pr- uh, process because uh, uh, the, the, the land uh, needs to be acquired, partly. Uh, the, the United States obviously goes through a, a significant process of territorial expansion. Uh, European capital, like in the, uh, in the instance of the Louisiana Purchase, European capital plays a very important role in the territorial expansion of the United States. Then that land needs to be cleared. Again, that... Uh, is a, a costly uh, process, and then uh, labor is purchased. Uh, slaves are purchased from the upper, uh, from the upper south, from places like Maryland and Virginia, and um, and and this is the um, this is all built upon the vast influx of European capital into the North American countryside. Bankers like the Browns, uh, the Rothschilds, the Barings. And many others uh, invest in this uh, new plantation complex, growing cotton. It is kind of a boom industry of the 19th century. It is fabulously profitable, especially in the early 19th century. And uh, you know, European capitalists who want to be, want to have part of the action, want to take part of the profits, they they invest in in in, in this uh, fledging industry, uh, and thus they invest uh, in the United States. By the by, the 1830s, 18, 1840s, you see uh, increasingly there are also 
also wealthy merchants in cities like New York and Boston who now have the capital to invest in uh, in cotton production uh, and and they do so and they draw you know the profits of this uh, cotton agriculture uh, and thus of slavery they don't just accumulate in the American South though they also accumulate in the American South but they very much also accumulate in cities such as New York Boston Le Havre Liverpool uh, and and elsewhere Sven, what really struck me in your book is um, this image of a little baby having a spider web rubbed on it when it was born, mm. you know, to right. so hopefully it would um, become a weaver or have a, this, you know, relationship with making its own clothes. Right. And it, it's interesting how that value of the producer has shifted with capitalism. So the emphasis is devaluing the producers and the production and um, increasing like the kind of the cultural value of the people who are making a lot of money from this. And I wondered if you could talk talk us through a little bit about how that mythology changed and then that value structure changed through capitalism. Yeah, wow, this is, uh, this is a great question and also a very, very big one. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, but yeah, I mean, uh, as I mentioned, people have produced cotton fabrics uh, for a very long, long time, for at least uh, 5,000 years. They have done so in many different parts of the world. It was one of the more in- important activities they engaged in. Uh, securing clothing was important uh, for humans and for societies more broadly. Clothing also had a, uh, a strong uh, symbolic component. So it wasn't just about the utility of it, but it was also about being able to represent yourself as, as, as a certain person to, to, to others. Uh, so uh, the, the, the manufacturing of, of, of clothing played an important uh, social and also cultural role, as you mentioned, in, in many different uh, societies and was very deeply embedded within the kind of larger cultural and social structures uh, of these uh, of these societies. Uh, life certainly wasn't, you know, easy. Life could be extremely difficult. Uh, <laughs> it was it was not fun to uh, uh, to, uh, to to spin a, a, a cotton. Uh, it was uh, you know it took a long time. It was very very labor intensive. The same is the case for 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 weaving. It 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 was very difficult to to produce uh, clothing, and and people generally had very little clothing because it was so difficult to make. It took so much. Uh, time to make. But of course, they had a different kind of relationship to this clothing, partly because it was often the result of their family labor and not necessarily something that they had acquired on markets. Um, it, in, 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 in most societies throughout most human history, uh, the production of cotton cloth was a very local affair. They grew the cotton, they harvested the cotton, they spun it at home when they had you know time or at night. Uh, they would weave it sitting under a tree. Um, and then they would consume it, and some of it they would sell. But uh, but it was a very local affair, very much focused on 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 family labor, or at the very least on kind of village labor, communal labor. Uh, with uh, with uh, with the advent of, of 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 capitalism, this this drastically changes. Uh, the, the, for one, there is a much greater division of labor. Some people grow cotton, some people spin it, and other other people weave it, and again others manufacture clothing out of it. Uh, and the spatial component of that uh, production process then also radically shifted. For the first time, really, very different parts of the world are connected through this commodity, through this commodity chain. 
the growers are in the Americas, the spinners are in Europe, the weavers might also be in Europe, and then the consumers are, let's say, in China or in India. So the commodity really travels through all corners of the world. And that, of course, changes the relationship of, uh, of people to the, to, to the textiles that they consume. What it, of course, also does is it enables a vastly increased productivity, uh, which in the end enables us today to consume many more textiles than was ever possible before uh, in human history. And uh, certainly that has its advantages as well. Sven, um, one thing um, that this book made me think about it as I was reading it was that I think that in the United States, I mean, I, I grew up here in, in public schools here in Austin, Texas, and, and there's this sort of yeah. general um, American exceptionalist narrative in the air that that's that that might say that that slavery was this mistake. People like people will call it the original sin of the United States. It was like this yeah. wrong turn that we ended up correcting and moving away from, but it, it wasn't fundamental to the growth of the nation. That it was, right. you know, that in our constitution, um, it, it wasn't compatible with the constitution, so we ended up kicking it out. Um, and reading your book and reading the sort of uh, role that U.S. cotton production played and then the sort of global drama, this global narrative, this global system of um, production and consumption, um, it really, for me, exploded. Not that I was clinging to it very much at all, but any vestiges of, right. of it were exploded. And um, can you just talk through how fundamental um, cotton production was and essentially slavery was to the entire edifice of the U.S. economy um, before the Civil War? Right, right, right. I, I, and I, I, I think I, I agree that this is one of the kind of important contributions of this of this book. But 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 let but let me preface my answer by saying we we cannot really know if the uh, if the United States and the American economy could have developed uh, in in broadly similar ways without uh, without cotton or without slavery. Uh, people often ask me, you know, could this not also all happened without the institution of slavery? And in the end, we don't know because we can only tell the history as it unfolded. And unfortunately, the way this history unfolded uh, uh, was in ways in which slavery. Uh, uh, and colonial expansion were, were really quite uh, quite at the core. And um, uh, within that story, the uh, expansion of, um, uh, of, uh, of, of, of slavery uh, uh, and the territorial expansion of the United States, of course, made possible this enormous expansion of, of cotton production that fed into, uh, uh, that fed into global markets. The, um, the importance of, 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 of cotton to the history of the United States and the history of the global economy uh, is 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 is, uh, is manifold. So if you look at the United States alone, uh, uh, cotton until the American Civil War is the single most important export of the United States. So uh, um, if you uh, if you want to understand the importance of the United States to the global economy, uh, the United States mattered principally to the global economy until 1861 because it was the world's most important exporter of, uh, of, uh, of raw cotton. Indeed, the entire expansion of cotton industrialization in Europe rested on the uh, uh, export of slave-produced cotton in the United States. Uh, then, of course, when you look at the development of the uh, industrial economy, both in the United States and in 
uh, in in Europe, but also in other parts of the world, uh, the industrialization almost always took place first in cotton manufacturing. So. Um, uh, and that was also uh, certainly the case in the United States. If you think about the histories that you have read about the Industrial Revolution in New England, then undoubtedly you will have read about the cotton factories of Lowell, Massachusetts, or Fall River, and other such places. So both on the agricultural side as well as on the um, on the industrial side, cotton is very, very important to the development of the uh, economy of the United States in the 19th century. Of course, what happens then is that significant profits are accumulated in cotton and the cotton trade and cotton agriculture and cotton industrialization. And they, by the 1840s, by the 1850s, are, are invested in new sectors of the economy, in, in railroads and in, in iron and steel production. Uh, in uh, in coal mining uh, and uh, you know eventually in other sectors of the economy as well. So so cotton in a way bec cotton becomes less important to the American economy as the 19th century goes on. Uh, but uh, but 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 the you know the United States economy in some ways got its start in uh, in this uh, in this cotton economy and especially it got its start as mattering to the larger world through the provision of slave-grown cotton to the global economy. Um, speaking of that, um, as a follow-up, I wanted to, to also ask you about, um, so England is the center of sort of uh, production of textiles and um, right. processing of cotton. Um, and yet, and, and also it, um, it was the, the imperial power in India. And at the start of our story, before cotton production shifts in a huge way to the United States, India is by far the biggest producer of, of raw cotton. And so why is it that the uh, sort of Manchester cotton magnates didn't source their cotton from the colony, from the, this, this Indian colony that the, 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 right. the nation ran? Right. In some ways, that, that is puzzling. As you mentioned, India was the world's most important producer of cotton, and it grew a large, uh, large, large, large quantities of, of, of raw cotton. Uh, but uh, but there are a couple of uh, there, there are a couple of reasons of why India did not uh, become so important to uh, the trade in global uh, in, in the global trade in, in raw cotton until the late 19th century. One is that uh, that that India itself had a very it's still in the 19th in the first half of the 19th century a very dynamic cotton manufacturing industry. Many people you know spun at home and wove clothing at home. And thus they consumed much of the cotton that was grown on the Indian continent, and thus that cotton was not available uh, for global trade. Then, of course, the trade infrastructure in India was very poorly developed. It was very difficult to move cotton over long distances. Uh, that made the cotton much more expensive when it came into European ports, and that was again in counter, uh, in, in in contrast to the to, to the United States, where huge investments in infrastructure improvements, you know, let's say on the Mississippi River, made the transport of cotton into global markets from the American hinterland ever cheaper. Uh, then there are certain properties of Indian cotton. It is uh, more short stapled than than American cotton. There are certain properties that make it uh, more difficult to use in manufacturing manufacturing uh, processes. And then I think it was difficult for the, the I mean, Br the Britain was an important presence in India, certainly, and the British, uh, British were, uh, were powerful, uh, but, but, uh, but, but they didn't quite uh, were able to affect the kind of plantation revolution in which they combined stolen land and enslaved labor to grow cotton in India 
as they uh, as the Americans were able to do in uh, in the United States or the French in Saint Domingue and the British in the in in, in the Caribbean. So there was something that was fundamentally different about America. Uh, uh, from India and the social structure of these places that I think also explain why India never became, uh, in the first half of the 19th century, never a dominant player on uh, on world uh, cotton markets. The British, though, they tried. They they were they were very concerned to be so dependent on. Uh, on on the United States for their cotton supplies, uh, they, they thought of the United States as kind of politically unstable. And just just like today, people don't like to be dependent for their oil consumption on Saudi Arabia. The British didn't like to be so dependent uh, on the United States, and they pushed very early. They pushed throughout the first half of the 19th century, trying to get cotton from other parts of the world. But they largely failed in this endeavor, and they failed for the reasons uh, that I just mentioned. At one point in the book, you mentioned that they even brought over a plantation owner from the American yeah, South yeah. to try to get him to right. organize um, Indian labor. Tell right. us how that went. <laughs> right. So, so there was an effort uh, to, uh, to it, 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 I mean, there were many efforts trying to increase cotton production in India for, for global markets. And eventually the British, uh, the, the East India Company decided that the best way to proceed would be to bring uh, people who know how to do this, people from the American South, uh, from Texas, to bring them uh, to India to start cotton plantations there. And they came uh, they came over and um, and they were given access to land and they were given tours and they brought the seeds from the United States. Uh, and they started out and and they, they, but they, they but they but they almost always failed or they always failed. Uh, and they failed because their great frustration was they just couldn't mobilize the labor. They hired, you know, farmers to help them out uh, on, on the cotton plantation, but these farmers still had access to land, and they preferred to work on their own land if push came to shove, and not to work on the plantation. Uh, and uh, and so the, the, these uh, these Texan uh, cotton farmers sitting in the remote countryside of India, they always complained that they just couldn't <laughs> get the people to you know to to work on the on the on the farms, and and so eventually uh, they gave up on this. Uh, on this uh, on this project because what was really at the core of it was not just the land it was not just the seed it was not just the tours it was not just the transportation infrastructure but you had to have somebody who did all the digging and the harvesting and taking care of the cotton plant and in the United States that uh, that had been resolved through enslaving Africans one of the um, <clears throat> excuse me I mean starting in <clears throat> We were lucky enough to talk to Sidney Mintz um, uh, uh, recently, um, and he he made a case that uh, really the the sort of origins of the Industrial Revolution um, can be found in sugar. Uh, and in right. sugar production. And the, the reason he was saying that is, look, uh, in order to turn sugar cane in, into some sort of stable, sweet thing, um, you need a lot of labor and land and capital. And it all needs to happen within 24 hours. And yes. uh, so the, the cane gets chopped down. Uh, you need fuel. You need uh, workers working through the night. You need these, you know, these sort of proto factories or actual factories in the fields. Um, and 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 he, I think, makes a good case for saying that a lot of the ideas of the industrial revolution begin um, in, in in sugarcane plantations in places like Madeira. What's interesting about cotton is that um, once you pick the cotton, it's it's fine. You you don't have immediately to process it. It, it can be processed right. elsewhere. There's something very interesting about the biology of cotton that contributes to 
it's the fact that it can its empire can stretch over the world. But I want to ask you another question about the biology of cotton, because co- cotton is also a flex crop. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a crop that doesn't just appear in textiles, as, as you note in, in the introduction. Yes. It's in banknotes, it's in coffee filters, it's in vegetable oil, it's in soap. Um, at what point does the empire of cotton stop being just about textiles and start being about other things? Wow, that's uh, that's I, I'm I I can't quite answer that question. I think that is um, I, I I don't think I can precisely date that. I mean, are the you know all the parts of the cotton plant uh, were were always used, uh, and uh, and I think to the to this day the, the the most important product of the cotton plant is the fiber itself. Uh, but uh, but clearly, you know, cottonseed oil is important, um, and and the cotton fiber itself is used for all kinds of purposes. But 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 you know, that said, it, it, the fiber is used for all kinds of purposes. But the dominant use of the fiber is uh, to this day for the for the production of uh, of, of of clothing. Okay. Um, the, the other question I had was, uh, you, you've, you, you've got this lovely history after cotton stops being a, a dominant part of the U.S. economy. Um, but cotton doesn't stop being important to other parts of the world. Um, and uh, again, what's sort of exciting in reading this book is the, the, the stories about how uh, other parts of the world then start to, to feel the, the, the cotton empire. Um who are the imperialists in that story? I mean, initially, of course, you know, we, we hear we hear the uh, the, the idea of uh, of the, the U.S. state being very important to the to the cotton empire in the United States. But who are the, you know, who are the you know, give us some names and some flags um, of people who are responsible for the um, for the spread of the cotton empire after it stops being important in the United States? Right. I mean, it. You know, it, it, the, the United States remains fairly important to the cotton empire on the agricultural side, even even to today. The United States is still one of the most important growers of, of raw cotton, even though for the American economy itself, cotton is not that important. And the number of people engaged in cotton agriculture, as you know today, are very very small in the United States, and they're at the same time very large in other parts of the world. Um, but um, but but I think there is. Uh, you know the number. They're, they're like they're, they're just very many actors who are involved in this expansion and uh, constant relocation of this cotton empire. Uh, these are the the, the 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 kind of shift of the of the global cotton economy is 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 not the result of you know some you know bankers sitting in the city of London suddenly single-handedly deciding that you know now it's not the United States going to be India next, but it's uh, but it but it is the but it, this is some of many many small decisions that are being made by individual landowners are made by uh, by colonial bureaucrats in many different parts of the world uh, are made by Merchants, by traders, I argue that merchants and traders are extremely important to this process, um, and uh, and of course, you know, the the original uh, the the emergence of the empire of cotton that I describe is largely the product of 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 the of the of the great power that uh, European and North American uh, statesmen and 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 uh, entrepreneurs and enjoy at a particular history at a particular moment in the history of the world. But um, but eventually uh, the, the 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 kind of cotton imperialists can also be very different sets of people. It can, for example, be uh, Russian imperial bureaucrats expanding mm-hmm. cotton agriculture in Central Asia, and they are eventually replaced by Soviet imperial bureaucrats who just you know continue the same project. They rat- 
radically reimagine and recast the Central Asian countryside in order to make it more conducive to the production of cotton for world markets. It can be, uh, you know, much of Indian, um, much of Indian, the Indian politics of, of independence, of anti-colonialism is a critique of Britain's role in the destruction of the Indian cotton economy. And Gandhi, of course, is pictured famously uh, sitting at home, you know, spinning cotton at a, at a, at a spinning wheel. Uh, but, but once Indian independence comes about, the newly independent Indian state in many ways continues this project of recasting the Indian countryside to make it more conducive to produce large quantities uh, of, uh, of cotton and mon monocultural agriculture, which you also mentioned earlier, uh, the monocultural production of cotton to feed the ever-increasing number of factories that produce cotton textiles in India. Post-independence post India is not an India where people suddenly start again sitting at home spinning cotton and weaving cloth. It's a, it's a, it's a world in which you know huge factories come about and this transformation of the countryside is now pushed by the independent uh, Indian state. The same in China. Uh, the, the communist China becomes uh, very engaged in a radical recasting of agriculture, of the countryside, of production. Uh, and in some ways, what I'm arguing in the book is that this, um, that this process of recasting both uh, agriculture and manufacturing is uh, it, it begins in certain parts of the world, but it, then it's appropriated by others and it becomes a really, truly the truly global process, and so the number of actors within this process is uh, is uh, is is very very large, and, I, and there are great ironies in it that sometimes, you know, the critique of those European cotton imperialists, the people who critique these European cotton imperialists for what they do to the countryside, what they do to the people in the countryside, are then in the end people who, in some ways radicalize this project of recasting the countryside once they get to power themselves. Man. So that's not a happy story. No. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I have a question for you just as a historian, especially, yeah. I mean, after doing all of this extensive research, what were some of the questions that you could only have had answered if you spoke to people on the ground that you would really <laughs> like to know <laughs> the answers to? Oh, wow. Okay, that's... Uh, <laughs> I mean, you know, what 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 is, of course, what look one one interesting issue is, of course, the world becomes increasingly globally connected. I mean, we all we all know this. This is a long process that you know didn't just start twenty years ago or so, but it but it's really started five hundred years ago, and um, and we know uh, how you know politicians, how writers, philosophers, merchants, uh, entrepreneurs how they uh, furthered that process, critiqued this process, engaged this process, thought about this pro process. But we, what we don't really know is how, you know, uh, peasants, enslaved workers, uh, industrial workers, how they, um, how they experienced these, this new degree of uh, global interconnectedness and what the understanding was of this uh, global interconnectedness. And I must say, in my research, sometimes I was curious, you know, I would have liked to be able to, you know, speak to an Indian farmer in 1850 trying to figure out, you know, how, 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 how you know, th th there is this word coming to you that, that, that makes, uh, makes uh, you know, the railroad is arriving, uh, Swiss merchants arriving at your doorstep, 
the, the price of cotton rises because there's a war in America and then it falls because the war is over. I mean, how did people uh, how did people experience that, and how did they think about that? That that is certainly something that the historical sources don't uh, easily tell a story that they don't easily tell, and that's a, that's something I would have liked people uh, would would have liked to ask people. Sven, um, so one of the really dramatic points that the book kind of builds up to is is the American Civil War, and so when the American Civil War happens, essentially the global cotton outflow for the United States closes off and you get this crisis in the global textile market. Yeah. But then after the Civil War is over, I think if if I remember correctly within 10 or 15 years, the Amer- you know, slavery is gone, slavery is illegal and the American South is um producing more cotton than ever and yeah. you identify that sort of sharecropping um model as this innovation that was made after the Civil War that actually increased the productivity of cotton. And then you argue that this model was was then taken over to India. And I'm wondering if um, if you think um, in places like India and China um, and, and in, in Africa that are mass that are, are now once again um, the most important producers of cotton in the world, yeah. um, is that model still relevant? Is that still in play? I mean, in some parts of the world, it's clearly still in play. In uh, in, uh, in in Western Africa, for example, uh, the cotton is still the uh, mostly the crop of, of relatively small farmers, uh, and 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 so this is uh, this is significant. In other parts of the world, it's 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 not that significant because uh, there has been a kind of consolidation of land holding. Uh, there has been uh, the emergence of uh, industrial agriculture, such as in the United States. Which, uh, to make it profitable, needs much greater expanses of land and much higher capital investments. So, so you know, you find some places in the world in which the system of labor that I described uh, having emerged uh, after the American Civil War in cotton, that uh, that this system of labor still exists. But I, I don't think it's uh, it's kind of the dominant labor system in the world's cotton industry today. But. Um, but let me go back to the kind of transition from slavery to, uh, to, to to other systems of labor. I mean, the book, it's important to see that the book makes two different kinds of arguments about slavery. The first argument it makes is that a certain moment in the development of the empire of cotton and with it in the development of global capitalism, slavery is very, very important. Um, and, uh, and, and so I'm arguing that we cannot understand the history of capitalism without also confronting the history of slavery, without also acknowledging the importance of slavery to labor mobilization under capitalism. But I'm also arguing that at a certain point, there is a tension between the further development of industrial capitalism and the enslavement of workers. And indeed, as we know, by the 18, uh, by 1861, to the, uh, the slavery becomes quite marginal, as you also just mentioned, it becomes quite marginal uh, to the empire of cotton because now new systems of labor mobilization are emerging. And one of the core questions to ask is exactly why is it at this particular point that now new forms of labor mobilization in cotton can uh, emerge? We spoke earlier about the world of Indian peasants in the 1820s and 1830s and the difficulty of these Texan cotton farmers who were brought by the British to India to increase uh, cotton production for uh, for export in India. But by the 1870s, by the 1880s, things began to change. And they began to change because now the state became much more powerful. And that state was able to push infrastructure, railroads, telegraphs into the countryside, 
of course, in the United States, but also in places like India or Central Asia. The state now um, created new forms of property and land. It created new forms of contract law. It made it a criminal offense to be a vagabond in the countryside. It made it increasingly difficult for people in the countryside to take uh, to have access to the to common resources in the forests or in the meadows or elsewhere. Uh, and it, it, it was the result of this change that now um, made it possible to mobilize labor through other systems uh, uh, than slavery. And it, it was at this moment that tenant farming, sharecropping, and all these labor systems that became so dominant to the empire of cotton by the late 19th century that they emerged. And I'm arguing that this was a truly a global process, that it was a process that came partly out of the crisis of slavery itself, but it came also as a result of the new capacities now of ever more powerful states to reimagine and recast the countryside. Rebecca asked about what the archives don't say uh, and what, what you wish you'd been able to, to hear a little yeah, bit more yeah, of. Yeah, um, yeah. But there is one notable historical incident involving uh, resistance and uh, opposition to the empire of cotton, and that's involving the Luddites. Uh, and I, I'm, if, if right. there's if one term that, uh, th that does matter in terms of the, the pointing out that the empire of cotton wasn't uh, you know, didn't flow smoothly, that it was always fought at some level, uh, and it was fought by workers in, in, in particular, um, then the story of Luddites is one that uh, I think it is worth is worth hearing. And I, I wonder if you could share with, with uh, listeners who may think that Luddite simply means hater of technology, uh, what in fact a Luddite was. I mean, uh, that, that Luddites, I mean, let, let me just step back a little and, and, and say that um, I think the issue of uh, you know how did uh, peasants and workers and others uh, respond uh, to this uh, expanding empire of cotton is a really important one. And in a way, one of the arguments that I'm trying to make in the book is that the empire of cotton is not just a project of all powerful entrepreneurs and all powerful statesmen, but it is very much the product of a kind of negotiation, a kind of conflict between these people on the one hand, but on the other hand, also the, the, the economic uh, interests and political desires and cultural preferences of people like uh, peasants and, uh, and, and wage workers. So it's a kind of co-production. It's not mm. just imposed uh, from the outside. And when you look at the agricultural side of things, uh, I, th I think this is really, really important to my argument because here I'm saying that the refusal of many peasants in many parts of the world in the late 18th and early 19th century to produce cotton at inexpensive prices for world markets and to engage in like monocultural production of cotton it has a huge impact of the empire of cotton. It creates exactly this uh, dynamic in which uh, slavery is seen by uh, uh, by entrepreneurs as a kind of solution to this problem uh, of, of of labor. So you know this is not a happy outcome, uh, but uh, but but it's still an outcome I think of this resistance of peasants to reorientating their uh, their production to uh, to the production for world markets. It's most dramatically seen in the case of Saint Domingue, uh, with the present day Haiti. The, the Saint Domingue was the world's most important producer of cotton for world markets before the Haitian Revolution. Uh, and, uh, you know, the cotton growers of Saint-Domingue obviously engaged in rebellion and revolution. And by the end of that, uh, the cotton production in Saint-Domingue uh, crashes down. And it is partly in response to that crisis of cotton agriculture in Saint-Domingue that the United States became so important to world markets, world production of cotton. When it comes to the industrial side, as you mentioned, the Luddites... Um, 
you know, I, 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 I'm, I don't know how much impact in the long term they they really had on uh, on uh, on the development of of cotton industrialization, but but this was a group of uh, of of, of uh, workers in the. Uh, in in France and in, in the uh, especially in the United Kingdom, who in the early 19th century uh, 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 saw that uh, these new kinds of cotton spinning machines and especially the new kinds of weaving machines that came about that increased productivity of labor in cotton manufacturing uh, drastically, that they saw them as uh, as uh, threats to their to their jobs and to their livelihood. And so what they did is they uh, they went uh, at night to the factories and they uh, they tried to destroy these machines or burn down the factories uh, and they and they succeeded sometimes that, that this was a pretty widespread movement that was found in many parts of uh, of Europe and the and the state uh, you know came down extremely hard on these uh, on these people uh, many of whom were executed and um, uh, but but you know in the end. Uh, you know, did did it did it make a, a significant difference to the development of of, of cotton uh, industrialization? Um, uh, I, I, I I don't think so. You know, one question that I have is on the on the sort of assembly and processing side of cotton. It yeah. seems it seems like the story since industrialization has been. Finding cheap sources of labor, whether it's in, you know, dark satanic mills in Manchester or in Lowell, Massachusetts. Um, and then when when labor in those places organized to a certain point, um, you know, capital fled those places. Right. And then, you know, you get this gradual return of cotton manufacturing to the global south. And and now it seems like it's you know more or less completely base sitter. We, we don't really have it anymore in the United States. I know that. Um, yeah. And and you read stuff and stuff is happening all the time, like the 2013 disaster in Bangladesh, where a thousand people died in a um, textile factory that collapsed. Um, in a textile factory that uh, one of its biggest customers was the American company Walmart. So I wonder if you can kind of get us up to date. Um, on the empire of cotton. And maybe I'm sort of re-asking a question that Raj asked earlier, but um, who is it at the top of the empire of cotton now? It seems to me that in addition to the sort of um, Chinese government officials that you, that you talked about reorganizing the countryside in, in China, um, that it's um, big Western textile manufacturers that sort of capture the bulk of profits from the situation where now, um, you know, well-off people in the West can essentially um, have unlimited amounts of cotton clothes as, as most people do now. So who, who, are, who are the kings of the cotton empire now? I mean that's a really great question, which I think in, in in a roundabout way connects the previous question on resistance to you know the question of how the empire of cotton developed in the 20th century and into the contemporary moment. I mean, who controls the empire? To answer your question first, the empire of cotton today, I think, is largely controlled by. Um, by uh, by very large retailers, uh, places like you mentioned, Walmart, uh, Carrefour, but there are also similar uh, 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 retailers in, in China and Brazil and elsewhere, and of course by uh, by um, uh, by companies which basically specialize in branding certain goods, such as Nike or Adidas or other such companies. Um, and and what they are able to do is they are able to they they basically divested themselves from production themselves. They don't make anything. Uh, but they, uh, the, but they can't 
track the production of certain things uh, on the world market, and they uh, you know tend to go with whoever is able to produce things. Uh, the, the cheapest and uh, the people who produce things the cheapest are, are uh, very often people who pay the lowest uh, wages and who have the lowest uh, labor standards. Um, this is, you know, as such, the drive towards cheap labor is certainly nothing new in the history of the cotton industry, which I think <laughs> the book illustrates quite well, right? Yes. That, that's a kind of a, this is kind of a theme that, that crosses uh, uh, all these centuries. This is something that, that, that kind of unifies the, the, the story. And, uh, and ironically, you know, in a, in a way, um, workers in some part of the world were, were really quite successful in the, in, the, in the course of the 19th and 20th century to improve their working conditions uh, to, and to uh, increase uh, the, their wages in, in cotton manufacturing in places like New England or even Lancashire. I mean, working conditions and wages were never great, but they were certainly much, much better in, let's say, 1950 than they had been in 1820. Um, they also managed to create certain kinds of protect uh, legislation that would protect uh, them from child labor and excessive uh, working hours and all of that. But the result, of course, of all of that was that production costs in these parts of the world rose and at the same time a huge supply of cheap labor and unregulated labor, largely unregulated labor, came up in ever more parts of the world. And as a result, as you mentioned, the cotton industry largely left uh, the global north, left Europe, left the United States and went to places where labor labor is, uh, is 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 much much uh, much much uh, uh, much much cheaper and and i think you know this is uh, this is the history of the of of the of the of the of the of the empire mm-hmm. of cotton there is kind of a race to the bottom and um, you know but eventually the world is uh, is of limited spatial extent it's a very big place but but it, but it ends you know at a certain point right. and i think we pretty much have reached the end i mean there is it's going to be very hard to find uh, labor even cheaper than than the labor we now find let's say in in, in bangladesh or vietnam or now also in africa so you know the one big overarching thing uh, about your book was the role of women in this whole process. You know, right. like, and there's yes. so much oppression in the fashion industry and in the textile industry. And I wonder how you parse that, you know, not only women as producers, but women as consumers are oppressed in this relationship to cotton. Right, right. This is a really important question. And uh, th- as you mentioned, this is an industry in which women as, as workers play a dominant role. And this is also an industry in which women as consumers play a dominant role. Um, one of the reasons of why I think in our collective memory of the history of the past 200 years, in our collective memory of industrialization, cotton and cotton industrialization tends to play not the central role is exactly because it's an industry so dominated by women. When we think about industrialization, we think that we tend to think about coal mines, railroads, huge steel factories, the River Rouge Ford factory, Detroit, and other such things. Industries dominated by men, but we usually don't think of the cotton textile industry, partly, I think, because it was so, so dominated by women. It was so dominated by women, I think, because, as I mentioned, it was the, it's the first factory industry that emerged anywhere in the world, 
And the big problem of a factory, a new, the new kinds of factories was that these were dreadful places to work. Nobody wanted to work there. And if people could somehow help it, they didn't end up in the factory. They continued to work on the land or they continued to work as artisans. Uh, the people who had the least ability to resist, the least ability to do something else, were children, uh, a major part of the workforce in cotton throughout much of its history. And if it weren't children, it were women. And it is for that reason that women and children, well, that women came to play a central role in uh, in the history uh, of of cotton production, and that is a role that they then you know kept through the through the through the centuries. Um, is there anything that we we didn't really touch upon that you wanted to point out before we finish? I mean, maybe the one thing to add would be to say that uh, you know cotton is still today a really important industry globally. Uh, last year, the world produced 124 million bales of cotton, which, if you would put them on top of one another, would create a tower 40,000 miles in height. Hmm. Uh, and there is today enough cotton produced in the world that we can produce 20 T-shirts for each person living on planet Earth. So this is, you know, on the one hand, it, it is a, a testimony to the huge uh, productivity advances that were made uh, possible through the expansion of uh, capitalism. But it is also uh, a, a world in which there's uh, uh, often terrible working conditions, terrible exploitation, and also very high ecological uh, consequences uh, persist to this day. Um, I just have one follow-up question. I got into an argument on a listserv <laughs> with an economist um, okay. about your book. <laughs> okay. Well, it, it wasn't necessarily about your book per se, but it was somehow the conversation turned to the massive human cost that got us to the point now where we have these ubiquitous textiles that we can kind of throw on without thinking very much right. about it. Um, and I was focusing on the, the, the human cost inside in your book. And he was saying that I was being short-sighted because um, it is impossible, as I think you made clear in the book, to imagine the modern world without the textile industry that came up. We, we couldn't we wouldn't be as mobile as we are. We wouldn't be able to exist in as many different climates and, and things like that. Um, and I'm wondering what you think about that. Um, in a sense, I mean, you're not, you know, the the people to ask are the people that 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 pay the price, um, the the workers, um, people who are enslaved, et cetera, et cetera. But from your perspective, having done all this research. Um, was it worth it? Was it all worth it or um, or, or not um, to go through this history and get to the point where we do have these, you know, sort of ubiquitous, soft, washable garments to wear? Right. I mean, I think that's a question that is uh, that I find impossible to answer. I, I, the only way I think we can answer that question is to that we need to keep both of these uh, stories in sight at the same time. Uh, there is the story of, as I mentioned several times, the story of enormous productivity advances. We now, you know, live, uh, many of us, not all of us, but many of us live much better lives and uh, we are able to consume uh, the goods that, that, that our ancestors were only able to dream about. Uh, and I would say all in all, even though, the, you know, there are, uh, for example, ecological problems with that, all in all, that is, uh, you know, that, that's, uh, that's a good thing. 
thing. Uh, but but uh, but that story went hand in hand with, uh, as I you know we discussed throughout this hour, it went hand in hand with enormous exploitation, with enormous violence, uh, with uh, you know the exploitation and um, and and I think we need to keep that uh, that in 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 sight as 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 well. Uh, and you know, I think what we can learn from that story also is that 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 we have the capacity uh, to, to create a world uh, that that is less unequal, that uh, rests less on violence and coercion, and that is uh, uh, that is giving better uh, working and living condi- conditions conditions uh, to, to all to all of us. That is partly the result of these you know huge productivity advances made possible by capitalism. Uh, but 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 I think we are we have a long way to. To go to 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 really make full use of, of, of what we're able to do and and to create a world uh, that is uh, more more just and uh, and uh, the, the, the world in which uh, all of us can can uh, draw from the benefits of, of this huge uh, increase in human creativity and human uh, production. Well, and and that, that 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 would be the the, the, the parting question for me as well, okay. which is um, that. You've, you, again, in, in this wonderful book, you, you compass how it is that capitalism is full of brutality and destruction. Um, and then uh, in the final page, um, mentioned that, that, that we're bending towards justice. Um, and, and I wonder whether that's a throwaway line or whether you think that because uh, it seems like there are, don't seem to be any more frontiers for capitalism left to exploit, um, there's, no, there's no alternative but for things to get better. I mean, whether, whether that optimism, optimism is sort of the optimism of the exhausted uh, or whether that's <laughs> right. um, you know uh, it's, it's something founded in uh, a, a more sort of sanguine optimism. No, I think we have. Uh, I truly believe that we have the capacity to create a, a world that uh, that uh, provides uh, better living and working conditions for all of us. A world that is uh, much m- much more just, that is much less unequal that, that, than the world that we have created so far. And so, uh, ending on an optimistic note in a book that tells often a terribly depressing story about the history <laughs> of the empire of cotton is is not just a throwaway line. That is uh, that is truly what I what I conclude from the, from from having studied. Uh, from having studied this history, but I'm also, you know, so I'm an optimist in the sense that I believe in uh, that w- w- what we can see in this story is this enormous degree of human creativity and human capability and human ability and human imagination. But what I also see, of course, is that uh, uh, th- th- that we don't always make use of our best uh, abilities, and that that you know, so far this history has uh, often been a, a history of of terrible exploitation and terrible violence, um, and uh, you know, this is probably something we should have a conversation on, that we should discuss as a society at large. Well, insofar as we do have that conversation, y- your book will be central to it. Thank you so much for your work. Thank you so much for having me. Thank Wonderful. you, Sven. Thank you, Sven. Take care. Thank you. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. That was fun. Bye. Dr. Sven Beckert is a professor of history at Harvard University and author of Empire of Cotton, A Global History. You've been listening to The Secret Ingredient with Raj Patel, Tom Philpott, and me, Rebecca McEnroy. Find more information on this show, listen back to archives, and get all the dirt on us at thesecretingredient.org. On our next episode of The Secret Ingredient, we'll be talking with Dr. Breeze Harper about her work creating and editing the groundbreaking anthology, Sista Vegan, Black Female Vegans Speak on Food, Identity, Health, and Society. Also, we have a special giveaway for all KUT podcast listeners. 
from now until August 16th, 2016. When you send an email to us at podcasts at KUT.org with a promo code MeetPeterMax in the subject line, you'll be entered to win one of 10 signed Peter Max posters. So good luck with that. The Secret Ingredient is engineered by David Alvarez and produced at KUT Radio in Austin, Texas. What is freedom? We talk about this question and so many more on KUT's discussion show, Views and Brews, taped live at the Cactus Cafe in Austin, Texas. You can find the entire archive on the Views and Brews podcast. Subscribe today.